Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fair Voice. I'm your host, Hannah Syriac. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but my opinions do not necessarily represent the opinions of Fair Mormon, the organization, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am so excited for today's episode today. We sit down and talk with Neil and Jasmine in the first episode of our Book of Mormon Historicity series. Our Book of Mormon Historicity series is going to be speaking to a lot of different people about what it means for the Book of Mormon to be historical and evidences that exist for that. And Today's episode is super awesome. Um, Just in the way of the reminder, we are starting, excitingly, our new segment of Q&A every single Sunday. Please submit your questions to H-S-E-A-R-I-A-C at fairmormon.org. This Sunday, we're going to be talking about Book of Mormon, um, and we're going to do a brief overview of Book of Mormon witnesses, and I'm really excited for our upcoming episodes on this subject, so please stay tuned for that. It's super awesome. But remember to submit me your questions. I am doing, I'm doing the first one on this Sunday. Um, I've already gotten a few questions submitted, but please submit more. I want to hear what you want to know. It should be really fun. And remember, anything related to apologetics, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, any of that stuff is fair game. Um, I'll do some research before I answer your questions, not because I don't feel comfortable answering your questions, but I want to make sure that I can direct you to citations of people smarter than me. Something that I really wanted to open with with today's episode is something that Jasmine and Neil both said that, you know, as young people, so I'm a young person, I'm 22. As young people, we're not trying to contribute originally at first, right? A part of these podcasts, part of the the point of these podcasts is for me to reinvent the wheel a bit to present some of the research that has already been out there, comment on it a bit, you know, comment my own personal interpretations and opinions on it, but not present anything that is my original research, but instead bring on people who are doing research right now to talk about their research. That is not to say that I'm not doing research. I, I am doing research, actually. You know, I'm in a master's program and I have my own personal projects outside of my master's thesis, so I am doing some research. But the focus of this is to look at people who are doing published research, who are contributing to the field in a very real way so that we can all learn from them. And I think what Neil says at the end of this episode in particular is super important, that as young people, if we want to start off in apologetics, we should try to reinvent the wheel of sorts. So what I mean by that, and I'm going to clarify because, you know, people will always be like, well, don't reinvent the wheel. What, what I mean by that is I think it's really important to read as much as possible as both Neil and Jasmine say, but also to make sure that you can articulate arguments that are logical and reasonable that are not necessarily your own. This is such an important skill because you're not going to be able to contribute every single argument. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to be able to comment on every single issue that exists. But finding people whose research you support and aligns with what you believe to be true, what you have experienced through study and through spiritual witnesses to be true is so important. So I just want to take a moment to to talk about young people and apologetics. It's going to be, it's literally going to be a minute before we get into the actual topic of the day, which is Book of Mormon Historicity, but we talk about it in the interview, so I thought it was important. I think we need a lot of young people who are willing to read a ton, to digest a ton, and to produce blog posts that have their basis in other people's research with some inspirational thoughts or some commentary on it before producing your original research. I think that that's how we get started, and 
I understand the inclination to want to contribute something unique and I'm contributing unique and original research as I get older, right? I have done undergrad and I'm now in a master's program and that's what the master's program is training me to do is contribute original thought. And I contributed some original thought in my undergraduate papers as well. But I think we reach a certain point where we need to recognize that the foundation for what we do comes from what the people before us have done. And then we can start producing more original work. So I would really encourage you, if you're a young person who wants to get into apologetics, if you're a young person who wants to get into religious scholarship and research, that is of the utmost importance for you to be aware of what has already been said. And this is not just so you can say these things to other people to help build their faith and to expand their knowledge, but it's also so that you know whether or not what you say is a good idea. And as a side note, I'll share a story, okay? So I was writing this paper in undergrad and I thought it was the coolest paper ever. I was like, this paper is gonna change the world. It's going to be absolutely amazing. And I did some research on the topic, couldn't find anyone who said what I said and I kept going down that path. And then the night before when I was, so I, this is probably bad of me to admit, but I'll admit it on, on podcast. So now it can be ingrained in history. I do everything except for finalizing footnotes. Um, the night before I turned in a paper, I always finalize the footnotes. That is not to say that I, I don't research beforehand. I obviously research beforehand and I have all of my scholarly sources ready beforehand, but I actually write the footnotes as the last thing I do. Um, I know where I'm going to cite scholars and I know where I'm going to interact with their ideas and I just drop the citation, but the actual footnotes I integrate towards the end. I don't know. It makes it easier for me. Just just a method that I have developed throughout the years. Well, anyway, so I came across a new source because I was looking at one of my footnotes and I was like, this could be a little bit more robust. I can add another source here. And I came across a new source that argued exactly what I was arguing using the exact same passages that I used. And I was like, okay, well, that's awkward. Um, it's, it's still got a good grade. It's still got an A on the paper. So I guess that's good. But the, the point of that story is to show you that a lot of what we think is original thought has already been said. And being familiar enough with the material um, is something that takes time. It's just something that takes a lot of time. You have to read a lot of it. But I'm so excited for this interview. Stay tuned, please. I hope you didn't leave me yet because right now we're going to launch into Book of Mormon Historicity with Neil and Jasmine. Today I'm talking with Neil and Jasmine Rapley. So I just want to give them a moment to introduce themselves. They're from Book of Mormon Central. So if they would tell us a little bit about who they are and what Book of Mormon Central is and what they both do there, that would be fantastic. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having us. We're happy to be here. Absolutely. As far as who Book of Mormon Central is and what it does, Book of Mormon Central exists per our mission statement to build faith in Jesus Christ through the Book of Mormon by making it defensible, accessible, and understandable. And uh, we do that in a lot of ways, mostly through web publishing and through uh, social media channels. We love publishing new research on the Book of Mormon, evidences for the Book of Mormon, and devotional resources for teaching and sitting, come follow me, and we do that through uh, Know Why articles, podcasts, uh, YouTube videos. With the, uh, Our most popular thing right now is Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor Halverson and Tyler Griffin. And a lot of people have really enjoyed that as kind of their Sunday school uh, lesson for the day while we've been at home church. And uh, we've got quite a few other projects as well. My role at Book of Mormon Central is I'm a web developer and graphic designer and a content manager. So I'm in charge of most of BMC's 
websites and other web projects. I'm the lead designer for our Scripture Plus app. And I also just make sure all of our publications for our websites are going out on time and have all the things they need. Uh, and my main involvement is uh, doing research and writing for Book of Mormon Central. Um, most of what I do right now is with our Nowise. Um, Nowise are just uh, short articles that are usually summarizing uh, some research or scholarship that's already been done. Every now and then we're breaking some new ground with them. I don't want to undersell them. They're, if you keep up with the Nowise, you're going to come across some really new stuff sometimes. But usually what we're doing is we're trying to summarize uh, some research and, and uh, scholarship that's already been done on the Book of Mormon um, and package it in a way that's going to reach a broader audience. And so uh, it's a short summarized article. It's also paired usually with a video uh, that uh, provides a minute or a minute and a half summary uh, and gets it out there on YouTube. Uh, there's also a podcast version where uh, you can just listen to it. You don't even have to bother reading it because we know nobody reads anything these days. Uh, so you don't, I do all the reading for you. And then uh, I literally then read what I wrote for you in the, in the podcast. So you don't even have, like, you can just go running and, and listen to it. Uh, but the, the main goal there is to, to just get research and writing out there for a broader audience. And uh, I've also been involved in some other research and, and stuff that we do. Um, and I'm also, uh, I'm, the director of operations and so that's just mundane boring administrative stuff that i get wrapped up into sometimes but <laughs> the fun part is the research and the writing that's really awesome yeah i really like a lot of both of what both of you have done i've seen it throughout the years i love the scripture plus app i think it's amazing um could you tell me a little bit about how you got here how did you end up at book of mormon central through miracles. Yeah. <laughs> um, our, our boss likes to say that when the Lord wants something to happen, he inspires multiple people. And many of the people who first started out at Book of Mormon Central Ground Zero very much feel that the Lord's hand was in it. And we felt that everything just fell in place in the right place at the right time to find the right people to get this, this going. And I don't know if you want to share your story first, Neil. Uh, sure. Um, I got involved because I just was <laughs> I went on a mission to Virginia and uh, in Virginia there are a lot of good Christian people who vehemently disagree with the church and uh, and I got into a lot of arguments and I'm not the kind of person who likes to lose arguments <laughs> and that was the main incentive I, I decided you know I, I mean my my testimony was never seriously shaken by any of it but you know I would get anti stuff thrown at me and I decided you know what I'm tired of losing these arguments so when I get home I'm going to do a bunch of research and I'm not going to lose arguments like this anymore. And uh, I've kind of grown past that urge to, well, Jasmine maybe doesn't think I've completely grown past <laughs> You've that. You've matured but, in a lot of ways. <laughs> but my involvement in doing research and writing on this has grown past that urge to win arguments against evangelicals or, or other critics. Uh, but that was kind of my start. And I was, I, I became absolutely fascinated with research into the ancient world. Um, and, uh, as I started to do research and I, I was still an undergrad in school and, uh, you know, ingratiated myself with a couple of organizations. I became a volunteer at Fair Mormon. Um, and then when Interpreter launched, I started working with them and then they were gracious enough to, you know, I threw a couple things their way saying, Hey, is this any good? Will you publish it? And then they, they, uh, miraculously thought it was, it was pretty good and they published it and that put my name out there. Um, and then I got invited to speak at a, uh, a conference sponsored by a group that's now, we've kind of taken them over. 
but they were called the Book of Mormon Archaeological Forum. And uh, I spoke there, and that's where I met Kirk Magleby. And uh, a few months later, Kirk actually called me up and said, hey, there is a uh, project underway, and we need someone uh, to get involved, and I want to have you have a meeting with uh, uh, John W. Welch at his office. And so we went and we met, and actually the project that that was going to be for didn't end up getting off the ground. Uh, but it was because shortly thereafter, this Book of Mormon Central project uh, started to come underway. And so Kirk called me a few months after that meeting and said, okay, scrap everything we talked about there. This is what's happening and this is what we want you for. Um, and it was still another few months before he and I met in person again and they formally extended the job offer to me. Um, this was uh, in August of 2015. Uh, they, they formally hired me and I was expecting like a part-time research assistant sort of job, uh, but they said, we want, uh, we need someone to do this full time. And uh, I was like, well, you mean you wanna pay me full time to do what I've been dreaming about getting a job? <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. Um, and then we talked some more and the name Steven Smoot came up, who was a really good friend of mine. And uh, you know, we had co-written some things together and uh, been, been good buddies for a while. And, and they asked me if, if he'd be interested. And I said, well, he literally has been staying at my parents' home this weekend because <laughs> he has nowhere to live. And he's about to go up to Idaho and live with his parents. And uh, he just, it was the weekend of the fair conference. And uh, he was just staying down at my parents' house so that he could attend the fair conference. And then he was gonna go live in his parents' basement because he hadn't found any work after graduating. And so uh, I walked out of that meeting. And I called Stephen. I said, Stephen, I think I just found us both full-time jobs. <laughs> and he, he just was floored. Um, and uh, that was, yeah, that's kind of how it started for me. And uh, I was at a, a point in my life, uh, it was, uh, it was, I'd been, I'd gone through some really difficult personal things at the time. And it was a major uh, miracle and, and ray of, of light for me at that point. And as far as my involvement, I, uh, well, I love ancient scripture. I love, I've had I've had a passion for ancient history and scripture since I was in high school. And then I came to college and uh, did my undergraduate in the Ancient Near Eastern Studies program. But towards the end of my time in the program, I decided that I, I felt drawn to go more into technology and web development because I had previous experience with that before. And I felt really strongly I needed to start doing that. And so my last uh, couple years, I spent a lot more time refining my skills there. And then around April, um, there was an event. At the time, I was the president of the Student Association for the Ancient Near Eastern Studies program. And I was the editor of Studia Antiqua, the student journal. And um, there was a guest lecturer coming into town to talk. I don't even remember what he talked about, to be honest. But he was a visiting lecturer, uh, joint with the Ancient Near Eastern Studies program and the law school, because John W. Welch was one of the people integral in bringing him to speak. And so we had a dinner that night to host him. And at that dinner, that was when I met John Welch. And he was just, we were introducing ourselves and asked me what my plans were after graduation. And I said, well, I haven't quite found a job yet, but I'm looking to go into web development. And he said, well, interesting, I'm looking for a web developer. And so that's how we made that connection. And sure enough, um, in August, we were able to get together and make Book of Mormon Central happen and get it off the ground with 
a website, a YouTube channel, our researchers writing stuff. And so August is officially when Book of Mormon Central formally started. Jack Welch um, is our founder and our fearless leader who uh, got together with a very generous donor who both of them were passionate about making sure Book of Mormon research was more accessible and not trapped away in books and peer-reviewed journal articles that no one reads, and also to help strengthen faith for those who are losing their faith in the Book of Mormon or are hearing attacks against the Book of Mormon to have their questions answered in very easy ways. And so we got an A, an A team, an all-star team of, uh, of people with the right skills in August to get this thing going. And then we publicly launched in January 2016. So it's been five years now. Yep. That's such a beautiful story. And I do have to add that Book of Mormon Central was really integral for my personal conversion. So I have a lot of love for what y'all do. And I think, I think the world of both of you. Um, but I wanted to transition a bit into Book of Mormon geography, because I feel like this is a pretty contested topic right now. So I wanted you to share what your perspective on this is. And I know, I, I think from judging from what you've written, you both tend towards the Mesoamerican model, which is what I tend towards too. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and how you think that this helps us prove Book of Mormon, or perhaps a better word, suggest Book of Mormon historicity. Well, to start off first, I would love to hear more of your stories on your conversion and how BMC might have helped you out. Not another time, not the right moment, but uh, we're always looking to hear more feedback on how we can help people. Um, institutionally, Book of Mormon Central is neutral. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is officially neutral. Uh, they released a geography essay, I believe, last year, just clarifying that the Book of Mormon took place in the ancient Americas, and that's as specific as we officially get. And, and as an institution at Book of Mormon Central, we do the same. We believe that geography is a really beautiful way to make sense of the text, but it, at the end of the day, it is, it is ancillary to the Book of Mormon's purpose to uh, be another testament of Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as far as uh, uh, that statement of institutional neutrality notwithstanding, uh, we are inclined to towards a Mesoamerican model, like you said, and a, a lot of that is just because, you know, we are, uh, we're committed to providing and, 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 and disseminating the very best available research and, and information that, uh, that we believe sheds light on the Book of Mormon. And uh, the reality is right now, in, in our estimation, and, and we aren't perfect, we're humans, and we're just doing the best we can to assess and judge the information, but, uh, you know, the reality is right now, a lot of that is coming out of Mesoamerica. Um, and we should point out that Book of Mormon Central has published evidence from various places in the Americas over the years. We have tended to gravitate to Mesoamerica, like Neil mentioned, because that's where a lot of the peer-reviewed our articles and works are coming from, and we would love to see proponents of other geographic models published in uh, peer-reviewed journals and, and books to get their, uh, their ideas academically vetted so that we can, you know, elevate our conversation. Uh, right, uh, and, and, you know, for me, uh, my own personal views, uh, you know, where a lot of this is coming from is, for one thing, I, I think you've got to start with the premise that if the Book of Mormon is true, regardless of exactly where it took place, then Joseph Smith's a prophet, right? There's, if, if we find a stela in Mexico that says, I, the king of the Lamanites, destroyed the people of Nephi here at Camorra, 
in AD 385, that's slam dunk evidence for the Book of Mormon, right? I don't, you know. probably never going to find something like that. Are you really, if you're really like die hard about Camorra being in New York, are you really going to be like, oh man, that disproves Joseph Smith's a prophet because he thought Camorra was in, like, no, right? That's, that's slam dunk evidence. And, and so I think that's the first, like, the way I approach this, I'm not committed to any particular location to start off with. I believe if it happened anywhere, then Joseph Smith's a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true and the church is true. Um, and with that kind of open-minded approach, I think it just kind of starts with what, if we study the geographic clues in the text and there are, um, John Sorensen says there's 600. Uh, Randall Spackman actually gathered a combined list of all the references that Sorensen and John Clark and others have used to argue about geography. There's over a thousand passages that uh, have some relevance. And uh, the fact that those can be pieced together into a, a coherent picture, irregardless of a particular geography, is in and of itself, I think, really powerful evidence. Because if you imagine, you know, we know how the Joseph, how Joseph Smith dictated the Book of Mormon, and he did it in, you know, a matter of, of you know, 70, 70 to 75 days or so. Um, and uh, just rattling off this text really rapidly the fact that these scattered references to uh, mountains, hills, valleys, lakes, rivers, oceans, cities, and all of this can be plotted on a map in any coherent way, in a way that is faithful to the details given in the text, is absolutely remarkable evidence for, uh, I think, the fact that there was a real land and a real territory that all of this was playing out on. Um, and so that's the first thing. And I think once you do plot that all out, the picture that emerges, uh, it's just a matter of, of finding the, the best approximation. And we all know if you've studied any ancient text with geographical details before, mapping it onto the real world isn't always easy, right? Uh, for one thing, most ancient writers don't have a bird's eye view like we do when we look at maps. They certainly don't have an accurate satellite image of the world, right? And so they, they have a completely different perspective. And so you're having to uh, kind of try to navigate some cultural, uh, differences and things like that. Uh, and so there's never a perfect match, even with, uh, you know, indisputably, uh, indisputably authentic ancient sources when we don't know the location of cities and places and stuff like that. There's always, it's, it's hard to exactly work out. But the fact that we can map this out at all uh, is, is really impressive. And uh, like I said, once you have a, a general picture and Pretty much everyone who's tried to just map it out, irregardless of location, they've done what's called internal maps. They've come up with a pretty similar layout of, of the land. Uh, and again, the fact that there's so many different people doing this just tell, speaks to the consistency of the text. Um, and you can take any one of those maps. And if, in my opinion, if you look around in the Americas to find somewhere that matches that, Mesoamerica comes out pretty much every time as, as the best fit. So, uh, so that's the kind of the first thing that's pretty persuasive to me is, is if you don't start with an agenda on where to put it, but just try to figure out what the geography looks like and then look at the map, Mesoamerica tends to be the best fit. The other, uh, the other thing though is when it comes to the level of civilization, the level of population and, and, and uh, things like that that's described in the Book of Mormon, the best match we have during Book of Mormon times in the Americas is in Mesoamerica. So uh, those are kind of the, the big points for me that lead me to, to Mesoamerica. 
uh, like Jazz mentioned, there are a few things that are interesting in some other places. If you, if you pay attention to metallurgy, your best match for the metallurgical technology described in the Book of Mormon is down in South America during the Book of Mormon times. Um, for things like the presence of barley, we, the best evidence we have for barley during Book of Mormon times actually does come from the Mississippi River Valley. Um, and there are a lot of agricultural matches for such as the Baja Peninsula as being in the right latitude, longitude. So, yeah, so there's evidence for whatever model you choose. So there, you know, there are things uh, all over the place. And we've talked about some of these other things in, in Book of Mormon Central and Noise and things like that. But on balance, I, I feel like those, those points that I made are kind of the, the key persuasive points um, that, that lead me to, to point to Mesoamerica. And I, I feel like there's just an, once I, once you start digging in there, there's like an overwhelming amount of, of just impressive uh, cultural and uh, um, archaeological connections, I think. So. And, and that's the persuasive part for me, as I'm not really much of a geographer myself, I'm a web developer, but I really enjoy the cultural and contextual connections. What can a specific geography's culture and surroundings inform us about the Book of Mormon? How can it elucidate a difficult passage? And there's a lot of examples of that. And one example might be when the anti-Nephi-Lehi's are burying their swords, they talk about the staining of the swords and how they no longer want to stain the swords with the blood of their enemies and with their sins, metaphorically. And when you think about a typical Roman steel sword, it doesn't make as much sense. But in Mesoamerica, when they had maquawits, or some pronounce it maquitel, uh, they're wooden swords with obsidian blades sticking out along the edges to create a serrated edge of sorts. And when you see it that way, the wood getting stained by blood becomes a lot more visual. And another example is Abinadi. It talks about how he was scourged with faggots, with flaming faggots. And, and that one's a difficult passage. Some have suggested it, maybe it should have been scorched instead of scourged because we depict him as being burned at the stake. But in Mesoamerica, there is a practice of whipping or flogging or scourging someone with a flaming bundle of sticks and it's uh, it's an attested practice and when you see, see examples like that it really elucidates the Book of Mormon helps me visualize it better and I believe is a strength for a geographic model but it helps me understand the Book of Mormon better if I can put it in a historical context yeah I think you both made a lot of really great points there especially about being as objective as possible when approaching the subject and seeing where the evidence takes you, but also being able to appreciate the cultural connections that you see. I think that that's a really productive way to look at the Book of Mormon. I'd like to transition, we've already talked about this a little bit, but I'd like to transition into what you both think are the most compelling evidences for Book of Mormon historicity. Uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, that, uh, the challenge with identifying most compelling evidence is, uh, is, for one thing, what I actually find most compelling is just the sheer volume, right? And, and the amount, like, it, there's just so many connections that we find. Um, and I, I can appreciate the fact that when we go and ask someone to believe, I mean, you're a convert, so you maybe can relate to this a little bit. What we're asking someone to believe here, like, if I came up to you today and said, I saw an angel and he gave me gold plates and I don't know any ancient languages, but I totally translated them. And this is what they said. You wouldn't believe me. You shouldn't believe me. I wouldn't believe me. Right. Like it, it's crazy, but that's what we're asking people to believe when we talk about, uh, you know, 
hey, this guy in, 18, in 1829 or, or 1827, an angel came to him. Well, 1823, the angel. But you know what I mean. Like, we're asking him to believe something that sounds pretty crazy. Uh, and so I, I can appreciate the fact that people have, uh, they want like some really major slam dunk piece of evidence or, or, or collection of evidence. And I really do think that our evidence is pretty compelling. We've got a lot of good reasons to take this seriously. Maybe not enough to really convince a skeptic, but more than there should be is kind of uh, been my mentality for a long time. Like there just, there should not be this much. You know, it's kind of, a, there's where there's smoke, there's fire. And of course our apologetic is never primarily about the evidence. It's always about your witness of your faith. We're asking people to believe on a witness of the spirit, not necessarily just on evidence. However, evidence is a really powerful way to bolster what we believe and to support it. And from an academic standpoint, to give a solid, plausible reason to say we're not crazy. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and so in, in that light, one of the really compelling things for me is, uh, and this is something John Clark, who's an archaeologist in Mesoamerica, he, he started the work on this and, and reported on it in 2005. Uh, there were recent updates made to the research last year by, uh, by Matt Roper. Um, but it's this, uh, basically, John Clark started with 60 criticisms of the Book of Mormon from the 19th century. And he basically tracked uh, the fate of those criticisms, if you will. People and a lot of these are anachronisms, yes. things that aren't, weren't in the Americas that the Book of Mormon claims are. Uh, alleged anachronisms and criticisms uh, of it in, in the 19th century. And basically, he showed that over time, by 2005, out of the 60 that he had selected, like 35 of them had either been confirmed archaeologically or had tentative evidence. Evidence was trending towards confirmation. Uh, and uh, to me, it's that body of like that trend that over time, the issues resolve themselves and the archaeology comes forward supporting various details. And uh, Matt Roper, in his work updating this last year, he expanded it to, I can't remember the exact number, but it was over 200 items that had been allegedly identified as anachronistic over the last 200 years. And uh, he showed that out of like 180 or something like that, it was in a fair presentation you can look up for the 2019 fair conference to, to get the exact numbers, but an overwhelming amount now had archaeological support, either absolute confirmation from archaeology or beginning to receive archaeological support and evidence. And uh, so, so that for me is just that overall trend and that overall picture of increasing support over time is one of the most compelling things. Uh, but if you want me to get into like some of the specifics of, you know, here's a piece that I think is really compelling and things like that. Uh, I, some of them aren't really going to surprise you. Uh, the Nahum, right? The the inscriptions from the Arabian Peninsula with NHM on them. Uh, I've done some. I have actually got some research that I haven't published yet on this, but uh, I've looked in depthly at every. There are there are the three altars that everyone talks about and gets excited about. What people don't know is there are actually several more inscriptions that mention this NHM tribe. Um, and and for maybe listeners who aren't familiar with the argument the NHM altars are referring to in 1 Nephi 1634, they're traveling through the Arabian Peninsula and they say they bury Ishmael and the name was called, or the place was called Nahum. And then in the 90s, there was discoveries of some altars right. that attest this place name, this location. Well, they, they attest, and this is where it gets sticky and, and this is how critics try to pick at this, right? Is it refers to a man who's from 
uh, Nehem, right, NHM. And uh, that's often interpreted as a tribal name. Uh, some people have actually interpreted it as a toponym, though. That's, uh, you can uh, look up a translation in, um, in a book published by the uh, British Museum when they, were, when they had these altars on exhibit, and they translated it as a place name. And there is a place called Nehem. And everyone, whether they translate the name as a tribe or a place, they indicate that these, these altars are saying that this person is from that place, Nehem. Uh, and they, they say it's in the same place that it is today, all the way back then in, in the seventh century BC. And like I said, there's actually several more inscriptions that refer to this tribe or place. And uh, I've kind of studied them in detail. And I've also studied uh, tribal maps and boundaries going back as far in antiquity as we can for that region. Um, and I find the evidence actually very compelling. And one of the things that you actually will find a lot in these ancient inscriptions is they're conflating tribal names and place names all the time. Because tribes, uh, we tend to think of them as people, but they're also geographic entities. People live somewhere, right? Um, and uh, they're geopolitical in a lot of ways. And tribes are treated as toponyms and place names all the time in these uh, ancient South Arabian inscriptions. And so I actually find that evidence very compelling. And uh, like I said, I have some, some things I'm hoping to get published along uh, adding to that conversation, hopefully, in the near future. Um, let's see, what else? Well, I personally, as someone with a background in ancient Near Eastern studies, the entire journey of Nephi from Jerusalem to the Promised Land, I think is some of our most exciting pieces of evidence, the entire Arabian Trail, because not only do we have these altars from Nahum and some additional, hopefully forthcoming evidence there, uh, but you have people like Warren Astin who have gone in and tried to identify other locations like a potential site for the Valley of Lemuel and a potential site for Bountiful using the archeology span we know there and also the topography and agricultural possibilities. And so it's, there's a lot of great possibilities in the Arabian Peninsula. And I think a lot of this is because for decades, most of our Book of Mormon research has been done by Latter-day Saint biblical scholars. In the 1980s and 90s, we had farms where you had uh, Dana Pike and David Seeley and Jack Welch and John Gee and all these people with uh, ancient Near Eastern backgrounds applying their skill sets to the Book of Mormon. And uh, up until now, we haven't had quite as much engagement with ancient American scholarship. And we're st starting to see that now. It's wonderful that we've got people like Mark Wright and Carrie Hull at the BYU faculty. And there are other Latter-day Saints also engaged in professionally in ancient America. And I would love to see more of that happening so we could see the same amount of rigor and exciting information from the ancient Near East um, coming out now in, in ancient America from all sorts of places. Um, yeah, and I mean, I don't want to, there actually has been a lot of good work on oh, for sure. We don't want to undersell, uh, undersell what's been done. Uh, but uh, another one that I think, this is not so much archaeological or, or, or whatnot, but I, I think it's important to recognize the witnesses, right? Um, the three witnesses, the eight witnesses, and some of the other kind of, they're called informal witnesses, but other people who had real tangible interactions with the plates. Um, I think it's kind of useful to remember, as cool as we think some of this other stuff is, the witnesses are the only form of evidence God chose to give us, right? Like, God deliberately said, I'm going to call witnesses. And then he did call witnesses, and he showed them the plates. Um, and he, he allowed them to see them, and he commanded them to testify to that. And they stayed true to that testimony for the entire duration of their lives. And so 
the testimony that they leave in, in the front of every Book of Mormon, but also the numerous occasions in which they bore witness and testimony to people over the course of their lifetime, and that uh, either were remembered, either they personally wrote down and, and kept track of, or people who heard them, you know, and remembered those occasions wrote about and talked about. Uh, I think that body of evidence and that historical documentation is very, very compelling. We're actually kind of come to a point where a lot of critics are kind of coming to terms with the existence of real plates, right? And they're, they're having to work around those in uh, some very interesting- uh, Creative ways. Creative ways, yeah. And, and I think that speaks to the compelling nature of their testimony. And uh, I don't think that should be taken lightly or dismissed, um, it, even though maybe it's not quite as cool as finding an ancient place name on inscriptions or, or whatever the case may be. And so uh, listeners should certainly be looking forward to the Interpreter Foundation. They've been working on this feature film all about the witnesses and in addition, uh, doing additional research in coordination with that film production. And I think it'll be a big contribution to our understanding of the witnesses and visualization of, of what a great uh, evidence it is for the Book of Mormon. Absolutely, and and I know that Dan Peterson feels very strongly about, I mean, that's the reason they're doing this, and I've had many conversations with them. I'm very excited about uh, about their Witnesses Project, so definitely look, look forward to that. In addition to, I know we focus a lot on archaeological evidences, and you talked about those church history evidences, but there are so many, and I don't want to take a ton of time going into specifics, but, you know, there's things like stylometry, trying to determine the word prints in the Book of Mormon to determine that there are very distinct voices. Mormon sounds very different from Alma and sounds very different from Nephi. And that Joseph Smith, to be an author, would have had to have been the greatest author of the 19th century in order to create such distinctions because even the greatest authors of his time uh, didn't have such distinct word prints between their characters. And there's things like geological evidence. A lot of, uh, at the time we're recording this, a lot of readers may be studying Third Nephi 8 to 11 in their Kampalmi study right now. And you've got the destruction and the three days of darkness in Third Nephi. Well, uh, Jerry Grover is a researcher who's a geologist professionally, and he's uh, applied his skills to the Book of Mormon in incredible ways uh, to suggest that a volcanic eruption is likely can account for most of the things that are going on, the days of darkness, the earthquakes, the um, waters coming up, and the cities being buried, and there's even um, a specific volcano, I can't even pronounce the name, I cannot pronounce the name of the volcano um, that Matt Roper published on last year in one of our know-wise, but uh, it it's one that dates to the first century AD in Veracruz, Mexico area, in a place that can be pretty uh, close to Book of Mormon times if that's your setting. Well, that actually, that volcano isn't in Veracruz. That's in oh, I'm sorry. Uh, a little more into central Mexico, but what's really interesting about that one is uh, through archaeological and geological dating, they're able to determine that it happened in the first half of the first century AD, and that doesn't sound very specific. Like we'd love to, we'd love for them to be able to say 30 AD, this thing went off, right? But with geological dating and stuff, you're getting pretty specific if you can date it to within a 50-year window like that. So they can date it specifically to the first half of the first century AD, and they can specifically date it to March or April based on uh, basically the diet they can see the people were eating before they were buried in ash. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, they, can, they can determine that, that it was specifically March or April, and we know that the crucifixion must have happened uh, you know, in 
uh, there's maybe some dispute as to the exact day, but early April is when the crucifixion happened. So that's a, a pretty uh, specific. But in Veracruz is the San Martin volcano, and that's the one Jerry Grover talks about. It's right along a fault line, and so it could have easily happened or most likely would have happened in conjunction with an earthquake that can help account for some of the additional destruction. And uh, actually, Jerry Grover's work on the geology is one is another one of those things that's just really compelling for me going into Mesoamerica because he basically shows that if you follow a you know a Mesoamerican model this exact volcano and uh, and fault line which we know erupted it has it has eruption events that date to around the 1st century AD can account for nearly all the destruction uh, that's talked about in third Nephi and uh, I was just, when I read through his book, I was, my jaw dropped at some of the ways, like just how perfectly it fit uh, the most common Mesoamerican models uh, and, and just worked out so well. And he went in a little bit into the geology of other regions and kind of talked about why they aren't quite as suitable for the Book of Mormon. And I love this piece of evidence because of the three days of darkness, which can be such a difficult passage in understanding what's going on there. And uh, I did some research in Pompeii with Tom Wayman and Matt Gray a few years ago before I graduated. And that's our most heavily attested volcanic eruption because we have such documentation of that. And it's so, the city itself is so immaculately preserved. Um, but a lot of uh, the ash cloud is what suffocated so many people in Pompeii and destroyed them. And, um, and, and, and I think that can explain a lot of the three days of darkness in third Nephi if you've got such thick clouds of ash, it naturally would cause a lot of death and destruction. And for those who survived, they probably would not have been in very good shape. We have accounts of people who survived the 9-11 attack, for example, who then suffered devastating lung cancer afterwards. And so it's, I think, significant that one of the first thing Christ does when he arrives is not only let them witness and touch his hands, but then he heals people. And I imagine there was great need for healing after a lot of that destruction and, and suffocating uh, air pollution. Yeah, I think th those are all really great evidences, but I want to push on something that you, Jasmine, said earlier, which is that the most compelling witness for the Book of Mormon is always a spiritual one. This is something that we've been talking a lot about on the podcast, because I feel like one of the criticisms that continually gets levied against religious people is that we do have, as a part of our epistemology, right, we do have spiritual witnesses. So how do you I guess, marry evidence with spiritual witnesses for your study of the Book of Mormon? Oh, well, that's an excellent question. Uh, I don't know if you have a better... Well, uh, I actually was just talking about this a little bit yesterday with uh, one of our co-workers. We're about to launch... I don't know if I should be talking about it, but we're about to launch... Uh, <laughs> well, we have a new project in the pipeline. Uh, a new project specifically on evidence, and uh, the co-worker of ours who's been the primary person working on this... Uh, He's written a blog post that's going to kind of introduce it, and I made a recommendation about defining evidence, uh, specifically with some with uh, this kind of question in mind. And I actually really like the definition. It's given in the Cambridge uh, Online Dictionary uh, for evidence, uh, which basically says that evidence is reasons to believe something is or is not true. Um, and the reason I like that definition is because it's not something that supersedes or replaces or excludes faith. In fact, it, it, it specifically includes the notion that evidence is a reason to believe something or not believe something, right? Um, and so 
I I don't think whether you're whether you're a religious person or a non-religious person, I don't think you don't have faith, right? You're you're believing something, and ultimately, what we believe on some level always goes beyond exactly what the evidence can confirm. Um, and uh, there's always, from a religious standpoint, there's always going to be a need for that spiritual witness. And uh, you know, people aren't always going to accept it, but I, you know, I feel compelled to be true to my convictions, right? And I can't, those convictions and, and the experiences I've had and the spiritual witness I've received is in and of itself a type of evidence. It's not an evidence I can transfer to you or to anybody else. I can bear witness to it, right? I can testify. And, and I think there is, like, testimony is evidence, right? That's, when, when, when we're doing historical research and even archaeological research, that's mostly what we're actually dependent on is testimony, right? Either written sources that are bearing witness in some way to what happened and what the past was like and things like that. And even artifacts and ruins are in some way bearing witness to us about what the past was like. And so testimony and witness is, is really all we have to reconstruct the past. And I think, you know, at least for me, the testimony and witness of people's spiritual and religious convictions are every bit as valid and worthy of being taken seriously as their testimony and witness of what they ate yesterday. In fact, arguably it's more important, right? Uh, it, it, it's far more significant. And um, I, I don't know if that really answers the question, but those are just some thoughts that I have. Yeah, and I would suggest that different evidence can resonate with different types of people. Naturally, I'm I'm very historically inclined, and so historical and archaeological evidence is really compelling for me. But it is ancillary, and it's it serves as Neil expressed to demonstrate plausibility that the things that the Book of Mormon claim uh, have a place in the ancient world, and that they absolutely could have happened. Uh, given the evidence we have, but at the end of the day, it's um, the truest testament is what the Book of Mormon testifies, and that is of Jesus Christ. It's of the gospel, and the spirit that witnesses to me that those things are true and that they really happened, and I rely very heavily on testimony of my family members who have had miraculous experiences and supernatural experiences. And even if I haven't had all the same experiences they have, I very much trust in them um, from a spiritual point of view. And so while often we separate, you know, the spirit confirming the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and, and archeological evidence, they very much can be combined in a very uh, synchronistic, sort of holistic way. It's it's all part of my testimony. The archaeology creates plausibility and the spirit creates conviction for me. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that kind of goes back to the idea of we shouldn't learn anything except to be by the power of the spirit, right? And the, and the power of the spirit enables us to research these things historically and we can have that, like those moments of pure intelligence. I'd like to transition a little bit to what my listeners are concerned about. So a lot of my listeners have told me that they're super concerned about the basic, basically the translation method of the Book of Mormon and how that impacts Book of Mormon historicity. So I was wondering what your experience has been with confronting claims like Joseph Smith um, was a treasure digger, therefore the golden plates are not 
real or the, therefore the golden plates were just for his own profit and gain. Well, I don't know how much he really profited from them for one thing. Uh, <laughs> he himself <laughs> said it was never very profitable <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think that uh, we're at a really interesting moment in church history and, and I do think there, like I, I, I say that uh, very seriously, like we're part of church history, right? And uh, the interesting parts didn't all just happen between 1830 and 1844, they're happening now. And uh, we're, we're at a very interesting moment in church history where a lot of people, th th there's greater awareness of our past and there's greater awareness of the controversies of our past. And a lot of people are trying to come to terms with that right now. And, uh, and that can be difficult. Um, and it's not just, uh, um, it's not just something that should be dismissed or brushed aside. Like I'm sympathetic to a lot of people who are, you know, trying to come to terms with this. Uh, but I, I do think, there's a lot, uh, I don't know, where was I going with that? <laughs> I'm not sure, but I can jump in. Uh, and I was just reading yesterday as I was, as part of my work in somewhat scripture study in the Articles of Faith, we've got number seven, which says, we believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation in tongues, and so forth. Using supernatural means through various medium is part of our church legacy and it is part of our heritage and it's part of what we believe. We believe that Moses received tablets, stone tablets from God on a mountain. We can also believe Joseph Smith received gold plates from an angel on a hill. And we can believe that Joseph Smith can translate the Book of Mormon through a stone if we believe that the Israelite high priest could receive revelation through the Urim and Thummim. And we can believe that the rod of Aaron um, created miracles as well. And so very much if, if we're a religion, as Professor Eric Huntsman has said, it's not religion if it's not weird, but uh, <laughs> it's it, embracing some of the supernatural elements is what makes religion religion. It's, it's what makes us connect with God. And so any medium, we, now the, the Lord and the church has set bounds and what we consider acceptable in a lot of ways, but but I love the seer stones. I love the idea of the Urim and Thummim and that God can communicate through an imperfect person through uh, very unassuming means to bring to pass great things, such as the Ahona, the Jaredite stones. I mean, stones are very much part of our scriptural and historical legacy. And so it's, it's never been an issue for me, but I, I would love to see us embrace it even more. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I, I think uh, I've gathered uh, some of my thoughts here a little bit. And uh, one of the things I think is really helpful, uh, a lot of people who are trying to grapple with this history right now, are, I, I, it's easy to forget that history is something people go to school and receive training on, right? You, you don't just read a historical document and know what it means, right? People have to go through a lot of training and and generally speaking to be credible as a as a historian you don't just have to go through four years of undergrad you have to go through another couple of years getting a master's and then another couple of years getting a phd and even then a few more years you know gaining experience and, and knowledge and things like that like it's really hard work to and actually probably always feel like an imposter <laughs> right it's it's really hard work to actually understand the past and I don't mean to say that to overwhelm or intimidate anybody who is is maybe feeling already overwhelmed, but 
the, the, the first thing that I think to maybe appreciate and step back uh, is just to realize like you're trying to do something that people receive extensive professional training to do. And so, yeah, it's jarring and it's hard and it's difficult for you to grapple with that. On the flip side, there are people who have received that training and who, who have studied it really in depth and who have strong, faithful testimonies of the restoration. And it's worthwhile listening to what they have to say about this, right? Uh, a lot of people want to dismiss them because they think they're apologists or they're not objective or whatever. Uh, but if you really are struggling with this, I think it's, it's worthwhile to listen to hear what someone who's spent their lifetime studying this stuff has to say and what they've learned and uh, how they've applied their actual training to studying this stuff uh, to understand it and interpret it and contextualize it. Um, there's a saying among historians that the past is a foreign country, but it's not a foreign planet. Uh, there are things that are weird and strange, and there's a concept of uh, Sam Weinberg talks about the, uh, he's, a, he's not really a historian, he's an educational psychologist who studies the process of learning and studying and researching history. Uh, and he has this, he talks about what he calls the familiar past and the distant past. And distant doesn't actually mean necessarily distant in time. It means distant in culture and lifestyle and things that are, the, the familiar past are the things that people in the past, they're the ways that people in the past are like us. They ate, they had, you know, relationships and feelings and all of this kind of, they were human beings like us and, and we can relate to them in really familiar ways. But in a lot of other ways, their world was strange and different. And uh, that's just as true of Israelites, maybe, maybe more true of Israelites from a thousand years ago or 2000 years ago, uh, as it is of, um, of Joseph Smith 200 years ago, right? He lives in a strange and different world than we do where things like seer stones are, real means of communicating with other realms, right? He lives in this world where, uh, first of all, there's all kinds of lore about Spanish and other people having buried treasures. And I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I thought digging for buried treasure seemed really cool, right? I probably still thought it was cool when I was 14, 15, 16, and 17, when Joseph Smith was involved in this stuff. And uh, I think we could cut him some slack and remember he was a teenager when he was involved in this stuff. Um, and, uh, and God tells us in the Doctrine and Covenants, section one, verse, uh, is it 24? I think it's verse 24. Also in 2 Nephi 31, verse three, that he speaks to man after the manner of their own understanding and their own language. And I think uh, what, where that rubber really hits the road is the fact that God's means of communicating with people in the past is sometimes strange and unfamiliar to us. And uh, it, when, when you study the ancient world, you really get a sense of how strange and unfamiliar that can get. Uh, if we really understood, uh, the, you know, Jasmine gave examples from, from the Bible, but I think uh, if we really understood contextually how Revelation was being received by, you know, Joseph of Egypt, it talks about him divining through a goblet and, and things like that, using a divining cup. And, and uh, you know, when you study these methods and rituals in the ancient Near East that were used for divination that are reflected in biblical texts, Abraham uh, and his means of making a covenant by cutting animals. and Like, there's, there's really weird stuff that's going on there. Um, but God is speaking to people 
and he's doing it in their mode of understanding, right? Mark Wright actually has a paper where he talks about language here should be understood as going beyond merely verbal words. And, you know, it's cultural and it's encoded in particular societies and, and lifestyles. And it's weird and it's hard for us to get used to, but coming to terms, I think, with the fact that the past isn't the present and it's not like the present and God compassionately and mercifully meets people where they're at and communicates to them in ways that they're familiar with, uh, it actually becomes a very inspiring and faith-promoting uh, concept for me to realize that maybe Joseph Smith believed in weird things like seer stones, but God wasn't judging him for that. He was working with him through that instead. And uh, one thing that's really sacralized that process for me is Don Bradley's recent book, The Lost 116 Pages. And the purpose of his book is to reconstruct what the narratives of the lost manuscript may have been. And it's a fascinating book altogether. But in his, at the beginning of his book, he goes through the translation process. And I just find it fascinating and a very sacred way to view the translation where he draws a lot of comparisons between Joseph Smith being the inheritor of a biblical priestly tradition, but in addition, the Book of Mormon priestly tradition. All of the record keepers of the Book of Mormon were themselves either in the royal line or the priestly line. And the last person to do so was Moroni. And he hands off the plates essentially through time to Joseph Smith. And he becomes the inheritor of that. And it's reflected in the way that he translates with a breastplate, with a Urim and Thummim, often behind a veil, at least in some parts of the translation. And, and so he draws those comparisons. And for me, um, it was a very, it's a very interesting way to view Joseph Smith as working in the Holy of Holies to produce this, this scripture for us, just as the biblical high priest and Book of Mormon high priest would have done. I really love everything that you both said. One one story that I always like sharing when we talk about this is I had a professor um, in a Greek religion class who made us take pictures of our sinks. So, and I have one of those sinks that's like a pedestal sink, you know? And he put the picture of my sink up on, <laughs> it was very odd, of my bathroom sink up on the um, PowerPoint screen or whatever that thing's called, I don't remember. Um, and then he essentially said, imagine if Hannah's apartment got completely destroyed and we were a thousand years in the future and we saw this sink. Everyone would think that Hannah was some kind of like magical witch person because she had this like remaining pedestal that she could have used for various <laughs> purification rituals. So I, I do, I, I've been fascinated by the ancient past, um, especially with regards to magic too. And I think what you said, Neil, about cutting some slack and what you said, Jasmine, about seeing it as sacred is really important. Um, one question that I would like to close on is tangentially related to what we were talking about, but kind of sort of not. Um, so you both are rather young, um, especially compared to most people who do this sort of stuff on average. Um, and we really want to get younger people involved. We think it's so important um, to make sure that we have, you know, representation of everyone that we can get. So what advice do you have for young people who are, are I hate saying young people to other young people, but like younger people who are in undergraduate programs right now who might have a little bit of interest in doing work like you do or doing work like I do and they have no clue where to start? Excellent question. Um, the way I started, the way Neil started was to just read 
read so much. Just, you know, immerse yourself in all of this literature and enjoy and embrace how much there is to offer and how true the Book of Mormon can be and how interesting there, how, how many avenues of inquiry there still are in church history and ancient scripture for Latter-day Saints to contribute in really meaningful ways. And, uh, and in addition to reading, you know, introduce yourself. If you ever see us or one of your, someone you look up to in the field, you've read about them, just go up and introduce yourself and say hi and, and tell them how much you love uh, this whole thing. And, and uh, networking with the people involved is a great way to get involved and to get guidance, mentorship, to, to feel part of this community because we are all part of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And, and I want people who are passionate about gospel scholarship too to feel like they're part of this community as well uh yeah absolutely and uh you know um i think that uh i i would just echo a lot of what jasmine just said read 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 everything um and that's hard <laughs> only so many hours I, a day <laughs> i would recommend i mean more than anything uh you need to read a lot of what other Latter-day Saints have already said about this stuff, right? Read Hugh Nibley, read John Sorensen, read, uh, you know, Jack Welch, and uh, read the past volumes of, of Journal of Book of Mormon Studies and the past volumes of the Farms Review and, and Interpreter. And, uh, you know, if you read a lot of Book of Mormon Central, sorry for the plug, but if you, you're, you'll be able to get caught up on a lot of this stuff quickly. Because like it's I said, we're, because they're short we're trying to summarize a, a good bit of this, uh, this research. And then we also have a lot of it available in full in our archive at, at Book of Mormon Central. So, you know, getting access to and reading a lot of this stuff has never been easier, okay? It's uh, true. Most fields is a very expensive the thing to get into because you've got to buy all these books and have access but almost everything on the book of mormon is freely available online thanks to the book of mormon central archive the byu scholars archive and the interpreter foundation everything is so accessible it's wonderful uh absolutely and i mean 10 years ago when i first started getting into this stuff i would have killed to have a resource like book of mormon central available um so so yeah read a lot uh I think there's a lot of value before you start trying to dive into a lot of the original research. And, and if you're an undergrad in a relevant field, you're going to start exploring some of the original research, uh, you know, for your classes anyway. But I think there's a lot of value of getting a handle on what Latter-day Saints have already said before you start trying to dive into like a lot of ancient Near Eastern or Mesoamerican stuff on your own. Uh, for one thing, you're going to maybe make the mistake of thinking you've discovered cool new stuff and someone else has already pointed it out. Uh, but for another thing, you might discover, like we were just talking about, it's a lot weirder than you think. And sometimes it's helpful to have had whether an actual personal guide, like if you've had a chance to work with Mark Wright, which you mentioned earlier, uh, or at least like a, a literary guide by reading what, what other people have said, they can kind of help you navigate that strange world and, and mediate it for you a little bit before you try diving in on your own. And so I think there's a lot of value there. Um, I, uh, another piece of advice is um, remember that you're young, right? <laughs> Sometimes I, I know I felt this urgency when I first started to do everything and to know everything. And I'm here I am 10 years later and I don't 
do and know everything at all. And um, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> and uh, appreciate the fact that you're young and just know, you, like, you don't have to change the world right now, and you don't have to make some grand splash or contribute contribution. Uh, like you've got a lot to learn and you can, you can, you can do that step by step and you can grow and there's time to do that. And, it, and it, like, don't be discouraged as well when you realize like, man, I, I just, I feel like I can't get enough done or whatever. Um, but the other thing I would suggest is do get started. Uh, I got started by, you know, I just started reading and I was like, I've got a bunch of ideas and I'm going to start a blog. And so that's what I did. And that's not because I, you know, I, I don't advise anyone to get started because you probably have great ideas. My ideas at first were terrible, right? And I have some really bad blog posts that really embarrass me. Don't go back and read the earliest stuff. I did. <laughs> but, uh, but you got to start somewhere, right? And it helps you begin to hone those skills and it helps you begin to um, put yourself out there a little bit so that, that you do get noticed and recognized. And uh, like Jasmine mentioned, network with people. Um, uh, if you're at BYU, I wasn't at BYU, so I did not have a lot of the networking opportunities that that students at BYU have because they can go and network with a lot of the professors and, and people who have been involved in this kind of stuff. But also, I, I think there's a lot of value in young people with this interest networking with other young people. Um, and, uh, you know, me, like I said, me and Steven were best buds because we were like the only people our age that we knew that did this stuff. But over time, we've met others and we've gotten to know and we've tried to bring others into our circle. And it's been a really neat experience, uh, you know, starting to develop a bit of a peer group uh, that that is interested in this kind of stuff. And, and I think know, it's very important for maintaining and strengthening your faith as well. As you go through all these things, you'll come across criticisms of the church and things might be hard for your faith. But having a, a group of friends or supports or mentors that have been through this as well or have dealt with similar issues or have come out on the other side a stronger person, having that sort of a network is invaluable. So just reaching out, they don't even have to be real in-person friends, you know, reach out on Facebook, on Instagram, and online in different circles to start developing that, those friendships. You know who to reach out to if you're ever struggling or just knowing that other people believe and they've been through this and they still have a testimony and it's a beautiful thing. One of the things that uh, David Seeley told my class once when I was an undergrad as we're preparing to go into grad school and to in biblical studies and to have all sorts of challenges to our faith, he says, you may be studying scriptures every day of your life, but never forget to read the Book of Mormon devotionally. Do it every single day. And I think that's important. And it can be easy for us because our jobs are the Book of Mormon, but and it's easy for us to get very bogged down in the analytics of all of it. But um, to never forget to just set aside time for devotional worship and reading of scripture, to make sure you're reconnecting spiritually as well as academically as you're getting excited in all of this. Uh, absolutely. And that is uh, a, a really key piece of advice, I think. Uh, I, I've gone through phases where like it's I just feel like it had all been so academicized for me. I don't know, is that even a word? <laughs> I don't know. But where, where I was studying all of it so much through historical lenses uh, that I'd have to step back and be like, this is not spiritually edifying for me right now. And I don't want to say, like, I, that makes it sound like we've talked about how much having contextual background can actually be spiritually edifying, and it can. Uh, but you have to remember to go back and read devotionally. And 
uh, I've had moments where I've done that after several years of, of having studied this from a more academic perspective and had so many aha moments uh, where I'm like, oh, wow, I've never noticed that. And um, but but being sure that you're doing some kind of devotional, spiritual uh, study of scripture or the words of the prophets. And if it's it sometimes is maybe helpful to do different different works of scripture at different times. Like if you're studying the Book of Mormon really intensely academically, then maybe try reading the New Testament or the Doctrine and Covenants or something on a devotional way, or even just like conference addresses in a devotional way and, and things like that, or, or vice versa. If you're doing New Testament stuff or Old Testament stuff, the Book of Mormon can be your important like devotional space and, you know, mix it up sometimes just in order to keep uh, some devotional scripture study as, as part of what you're doing. I love a lot of what you said, and I just want to share a little story about the community to try to inspire people to do this, right? So I'm 22. I'm pretty young, and, you know, I'm not trying to do any original research beyond my master's thesis. We're, we're good with that. Um, <laughs> but I had a friend in my ward three years ago who just kept talking to me. Like, I, I found it a little bit annoying at first. He'd come up to me after Sunday school and be like, Hannah, is my exegesis correct, Hannah? Like, did I use the right Greek word? And I was like, who is this kid? And then we developed this really great friendship, and he became the person that inspired me to join Fair Mormon, um, because he was super involved with them, and he he said that like he just basically just had this plan of becoming my friend and then infiltrating me. Um, but then I, you know, a couple weeks ago, I had someone reach out to me on Instagram who was like, hey, I was in the same position you were a couple years ago, just about to start my master's thesis, really interested in, I do like New Testament, Hebrew Bible and Book of Abraham stuff, um, really interested in that stuff. Let me, let me like take you out and we can talk and we can develop a friendship and we can learn from each other's scholarship. And I think that that's been one of the greatest parts of this for me is just meeting like-minded individuals and just how welcoming everyone is in the, com in the community too. And I will say that, you know, I was a little bit intimidated because I had worked with a lot of these people just throughout my, I don't know, my BYU experience, right? I had worked in ancient scripture for four years. Um, and I was like, oh, maybe it'll be different. You know, maybe these professors will be <laughs> more intimidating now, but it's, you know, they're not. Um, John Gee is, is the nicest person I have ever met in my entire life. These people are real people who want to talk to you. They won't find you annoying if you have good intentions. So I just think it is really important to look for that community and I will plug myself. If you're at BYU, you can always talk to me via social media. Um, and I just wanted to close by letting you guys share your where we can find you and share your stuff once more and more time just like the app book of mormon central that sort of stuff yeah bookofmormoncentral.org is our main website but we've got a bunch of other web properties as well that you can find on there to help your come study your scholarship into book of mormon or latter-day saint studies you name it and then scriptureplus.org is where you can download our free 100 free app uh, for really, really diving deep to study your scriptures. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Pinterest, YouTube, SoundCloud. I don't know if I'm forgetting any others. All the major platforms you can find us on and, uh, and hopefully answer any of your gospel questions or further your study in the scriptures. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. This was great.